It was completely dark. I see him standing at the back door. Bam! He's getting some kind of sick thrill from what he's doing. He just got pleasure in inflicting pain on other people. As soon as I walked in, the blood had just soaked all the way through. He looked over his shoulder as I drew my weapon. He chased her, he hit her with an axe handle. A blunt instrument to beat the victims to death. It was just so brutal. There was no emotion. He's a serial killer. Traumatic, it was devastating. It was like front page news. It was like a big deal. I mean, it was always there every day. Thank God we stopped him. Once the attack had occurred at the Berries, they mobilized the entire department and they did a door-to-door -door search of every house in that whole neighborhood, which took us all night. It was close to midnight, August 9th, 1984, and Yuta Chambers, a rookie cop in Henderson, Nevada, was among those prowling a dark rural neighborhood 15 miles from the Las Vegas Strip, looking for the man who brutalized Nancy Berry and her husband Chris with a weathered pickaxe handle hitting him so hard the club snapped in two. At that moment, the Berries were on their way to separate hospitals. Chris, the most seriously hurt of the two, was in a flight for life helicopter. But the man who'd slipped into their home and attacked them was gone, a phantom in the darkness. So we had checked every single house. I mean, we were doing that all night because we wanted to make sure that he hadn't broke into some other house and those people weren't able to get to the phone. I'm Kevin Vaughn, an investigative reporter at Nine News in Denver. This is part two of Blame, the Fear All These Years. We're telling the story of hammer attacks in January 1984 that left four people dead and sent shockwaves through the Denver community. Attacks that would go unsolved for more than 30 years. Attacks that were linked by DNA to a man named Alex Christopher Ewing in the summer of 2018. After they got to the Barrys' home, Henderson police detectives knew immediately who they were searching for. It had been only hours since Alex Ewing, already facing an attempted murder charge in Kingman, Arizona, Bam. had escaped during a bathroom break at a filling station. And it had been barely 60 minutes since some of those same officers had responded to 911 calls from other homes in the neighborhood where the Barrys live. It was a rural area on the edge of the desert. 700 North Orleans. Large lots, many of them undeveloped. Homes set back from the roads. And calls reporting a strange man prowling around. A man who apparently cut himself breaking into the garage next to one home. A man whose description matched Ewing's. As badly beaten as she was, Nancy Berry answered the detective's questions telling them what she'd seen. A young man, roughly five foot eight, shirtless and wearing a pair of red athletic shorts. Police documented their search in handwritten reports. Shoe prints believed to be the suspects were observed around both vehicles belonging to the victims. Officer Ron Nordine and Captain Ken Krause, Mojave County Sheriff's Office, began tracking the suspect's shoe prints at the Barry residence. The prints were made by someone moving fast from the stride and depth of prints left in the dirt. The path of the shoe prints was followed approximately two miles north and northeast. Henderson Police Department, report number 84-4406. The next day, August 10th. Headline, escapee is suspect in assault. Ewing's escape hit the news. Nevada couple hurt in apparent theft tribe. 
And the day after that, it exploded. He is still wearing bright orange prisoner's garb. Even in Phoenix, nearly 300 miles away. It is unknown if Ewing is armed, but he is considered dangerous. The savage attack on the berries made the paper. Arizona Republic, August 11, 1984. Television photographers followed the manhunt, capturing footage as cops peered through binoculars into the desert. An orange and white police helicopter lifted off along a highway for an aerial search. Park rangers checked creeks and canyons around Lake Mead, all looking for Ewing. People were on edge. A collective case of the jitters settled over the community. It was for days afterwards, we kept getting all these phone calls about, there's somebody in my yard. People were very much on edge because it was a small community and everybody kind of knew and everybody knew that this horrible thing had happened and these people had been hurt and he was still out there. This was the early 80s. It was a wild time. A lot of cocaine, a lot of partying. Five or six miles from where those footprints faded away in the crumbling Nevada soil, sat the northeast tip of one finger of massive Lake Mead. This was a big area for partying. People would come out. It was a 24-hour-a-day town. The country's first national recreation area, there was seemingly endless water. Picnic areas, campgrounds, boating accidents, DUIs, suicides, murders. All surrounded by chalky hills and mesas, volcanic rock, scraggly sagebrush, juniper bushes, and in a few places, stands of cottonwood trees. In one year when I was here, we had 63 deaths, so there was always something going on. Mike Meyer was one of the National Park Service rangers assigned to keep the peace in this place where the desolate beauty of the desert southwest collided with the cocaine-fueled energy of a booming Las Vegas. And there was only eight of us going from Boulder Beach over to, Col to Colville, so we were always running. To understand how all that was happening, you have to understand the immensity of Lake Mead. Imagine a giant three-armed propeller, each blade stretching 25 miles across the desert from the center point, 750 miles of shoreline, enough water to flood nearly 30 million acres, all of it held back by the Depression-era Hoover Dam. Today, Lake Mead covers more than 290 square miles, but in August 1984, it was even bigger. And its sheer size and remote location made it the perfect place for trouble. And this was back in the days when EMT was a big deal, and we were all EMT, so we were doing both the medical and the law enforcement. So it was a very busy, busy place. There were some days when we had the helicopter flying out from Vegas three or four times bringing patients back in, in uh, to Vegas. So we also did a lot of boating. We, somebody was on the boat every day. So we patrolled the whole, the whole lake. There were three rangers at Colville Bay when I was at, and always one ranger would be on the boat, and the other two of us would be on the land patrolling. Mike Myers retired. He doesn't even live in Nevada any longer. But he came back to talk to us. When I first came here, it was just the transition period from when the good, the good guys, the mafia was here, and it was transferring over. And I was saying how there was over 390 FBI agents here doing all of this. And we had all the boats staked out here and a Colville wash and stuff. Yeah. And there was a guy who found a body with his, he had, his hands were wired behind his back with a bullet. He had the dealer stuff on. And then one of the other places, uh, somebody was hiking and found two graves right next to each other that hadn't been used. They were dug out. They were, dug. They, they were, they were about 30 inches, so <laughs> a lot of stuff. And then always the story with the FBI guys 
were about how many bodies are out in the lake. Because, you know, the, back in those days, this, this was 24 hours a day. Everybody was coming out. And, you know, you could knock somebody off there in Vegas and put them in the boat, go out there. And at that time, it was four, 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 yeah, 400 feet deep. And once you pass that thermocline, the body can't decompose as quicker than, than the air builds up to bring it back up. Yeah. So it was kind of an interesting time. We met at the end of a road that used to lead to a marina in what was known as Las Vegas Bay, the far western edge of Lake Mead. The bay's gone now thanks to a dam built upstream in the 90s. The marina's gone too. Today, all that's left are rusting steel cables on the old boat ramp, gravel, and tufts of sage. Back then, this was Meyer's office of sorts, the place where he spent countless hours trying to stop trouble, trying to keep people safe out on the water. And on the boat, they're looking for everything from proper uh, fishing license. license, registration. Uh, the big thing was safety. We'd make the stop, have everybody hold up their life jackets so we had the right number of life jackets for the right number of people. We also, again, a real party time, so we were looking for intoxicated boat, a boat, a boat operator, which was a problem because jet skis were just becoming a thing. We had a lot of accidents where people got run right over by the cigarette boat, you know, the one that has the two or three engine that's going 80 miles an hour, and he runs right over the top of somebody and stuff. So we had a lot of a lot of prop cut in accidents and stuff stuff like that. So it was as it was as intense out in the lake as it was here on um, on the shore. The news of Alex Ewing's escape first crackled over the Rangers' radios late on the day he slipped away from that sheriff's van. That was our first report. And then supervisors shared follow-up reports the next day telling of the attack on Nancy and Chris Berry. It went in into a major search. We were searching all, all these back little canyons that are here and everything, uh, looking, we were getting reports like anything else, uh, a million uh, you know, sightings, which weren't maybe sightings, but, but, but we were going af after that. So from, from where the Berry's home was to where we're standing now, as the crow flies, would you have an estimate on I would the distance? Say that I think we were estimated at eight, eight miles. It was quite a distance, and it, it, it's across mountains. I mean, not mountains, but high, high hills, rugged volcanic rock and stuff, which kind of led to our deal that this wouldn't be the way you'd want to go. Saturday evening came, the second full day of the hunt for Ewing. Lots of reported sightings, no luck actually finding him. And back in those days, we had no gas station out here. So we had to go into Henderson every day to fill up our, our gas tanks. And we were meeting here uh, on uh, Saturday and kind of deciding who was going to go in and get gas and then get our, get our meal. <laughs> That's how we did it. And we were sitting up at the ranger station and uh, we got a call from dispatch that the Centel office uh, um, uh, operator had gotten uh, put through a collect call off of uh, Las Vegas Wash Marina telephone to uh, somebody in uh, Kingman and that Ewing was there at that moment. Was it really him? We'd heard this. Or another false alarm. It's been going on for three days. Okay, so we came down and, and I have to say, we were not expecting to see anything. You know, we were, we were going to check it out, be, do our due, due diligence. And as, as we arrived, there is Ewing. I mean, he's dressed exactly as he's been uh, described, the right height, the right frame, and he's walking off the ramp from, uh, from the, the marina. Meyer didn't believe his eyes, asking the ranger riding with him, is that Ewing? And he goes, yeah, that's Ewing. So I sped up, and at that moment, he, he started running off, off the ramp. 
and we kind of intersected at the same time. He looked over his shoulder as I drew my weapon, and I ordered him to stop. And he wasn't stopping. He was. He he took off. So I I started after him. I reholstered my weapon, and we ran along the beach for probably four to five hundred yards. And it's hot, and you know I got my vest on. And, and but I'm keeping up with him, and I'm thinking this guy's supposed to be a track star. And at least I'm keeping up with him. And we came to a small rise. And at that moment, I'm thinking, where did he go? As Meyer is telling the story, we start walking, retracing his steps from 36 years ago. Somewhere in here, he made it over, over the top of this little saddle here. Uh-huh. And this is when I started to slow down. I had this vision of somebody with a gigantic boulder and a gigantic telephone pole or something in in their hands. That, 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 that image goes through my my mind now, even, even now. Another ranger had gone left and over a hill, intent on blocking Ewing's path to a campground crowded with people. A third ranger had fallen behind. So I came up over this, this ridge here. I had re, redrawn my weapon at this point. And again, my focus was towards the campground because I knew the campground was over here to, to my left. So I'm looking this way. I'm not looking to where the lake was at this time. Well, the lake actually extended up this way, but it, it was kind of a marshy area. There was a wide area, area and you, you can see the campground is right over there. So my whole vision, and, uh, you know, head on a swivel, I, I was not. I was looking this way. And I look, looking this way, and imagine the water being up here, probably maybe to where this line of brushes right here. And this is when I'm looking this way, looking for him. I can see Steve up there on the hill, and he waves at me that he sees me. And we're looking, and then this is when the guy's name was Cactus Jack, of all names. He yells, Mike, he's over here. And this is when I look over, and, you know, 50, uh, probably it was a little bit farther than that, probably 75 feet away, there he is. It's been more than 20 years since Mike Meyer has been at Lake Mead, much longer than that since he's been at this spot. But in his mind, it's August 11th, 1984. He can see the rocks. He can see the water that's no longer here. And he can see Alex Christopher Ewing. And now the water has come around, and I know he can't get back around on, on this side. He's kind of limited the way the ridge comes down. It's, it's hard to imagine without the water, but he had no escape route that way at this point. So I advanced on him here at this point, and I had, I had my gun out. I was telling him to get down, get down. You know, he refused to do it. So I got to about, let's say Ewing was right where this black rock is right here. And I was about this far away, and Cactus could see I was aiming, and he had moved his boat off to that way. I could see that I had a clear, a clear field here and stuff. There were no boaters, it was wide open, and you know that's when I told him to get down. He failed to do that. That cold stare that I talked about earlier was just staring there, and that's when I said, I'm gonna shoot you, and that's when he got down. Then I advanced on him, 
and you know I you know I pinned his uh, uh, shoulder back and hand handcuffed him. And then Meyer did something he'd never done before and never did again. I, I was down next to him, and I grabbed him by the back of hair, and I said, don't ever run from me again. I said it with a little more intensity than that, but so that's, that's the capture of wow. Mr. Ewing. It was three days before Ewing's 24th birthday. He said virtually nothing after Meyer cuffed him. And he just looks at me, just cold, cold stare. And we took him up to the ranger station where, where we had processed him. All the rest of the rangers came. Everybody's pumped. The adrenaline's flying. We've got this guy. We're feeling pretty good. And I read him his rights. Uh, Paul takes his shoes off because we wanted to bag them right, right away because we knew that that matched the bear. That was important to matching the berries deal. And through this whole thing, flat emotion. When I read him his rights, he said he understood, and that was it. He never expressed any emotions at all. And never really said anything like, Never said uh, anything, no. You got the wrong guy. No, 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 never, here. never, never said anything. You'd think Henderson police would be thrilled with Mike Meyer. After all, he got their man. But it turns out at least some officers second-guessed his actions. When the Henderson officers arrived, one of the first questions that they said is, why didn't I shoot him? And I said, because he gave up and he didn't have a weapon? And it was, she killed him. And that went on for me and for some of the other rangers that were associated for probably six months to a year later when we booked prisoners into Henderson. Oh, that's Meyer. He didn't shoot him. That's Meyer. That's the rangers. They should have shot him. And I always kind of, and, and again, we have to take the time of what it was in time. You know, we, we judge things in 2020 time, and this is 1980 time. But it was still this deal that this guy wasn't armed. It was, was not armed. He gave up. For whatever he did, I'm not the judge and jury on, on, his, on his punishment, the system is. And it was very interesting that that, that came back to kind of haunt me. The other thing that was interesting on the other side of that, I, I got like 10 or 12 letters from various citizens over the next month or so thanking me for capture because this was on the television. It was in Weather Paper and my name, name had been uh, mentioned and the letters came in to the Park Service office there in Boulder and I got them. And that was, that was probably the only time <laughs> that that's ever happened. Had you shot him, you might have had repercussions, right? In, in those days with the Park Service, there had probably only been two other shootings at that time. We had lost three rangers before that, but this was when law enforcement was just coming up. My whole career, starting in 76, is when uh, the Park Service got law enforcement authority. And we became a professional organization at that time with law enforcement. It wasn't a collateral duty. You went to the academy, you were trained, this is what you were supposed to do. So the Park Service was very hesitant to have that type of image of rangers shooting the visiting public because the image is <laughs> the, the, the friendly Smokey the Bear Ranger, which, right. is, which is the right image. But it's forgotten at times that there are Lake Meads, there are Yosemites, there are other places where things that aren't always the best happen. We need to stop and say a couple things here. That ranger who cut left he was determined to do whatever was necessary to keep Ewing from reaching that campground, including using his shotgun. And Meyer himself acknowledged then, and acknowledges now, that if Ewing hadn't given up, he might have shot him. It never came to that, and let's think about that for a minute. This was 1984, 
five years before DNA was beginning to be recognized as a powerful crime-solving tool. If Ewing had been shot and killed that day at Lake Mead, he would have been laid to rest without his DNA ever going into the system, and he almost certainly never would have been linked to those Colorado killings that happened eight months earlier. But nobody shot him. This is Eyewitness News 8. And still, his arrest was big news. Good evening. David Davis has the weekend off. I'm Cindy Benson. The story of the attack, Ewing's escape, and his arrest rippled across the airwaves and the front pages in two states. An escaped convict who roamed the Lake Mead area for three days and allegedly brutally beat a Henderson couple is behind bars today. Credit for the arrest goes to an alert Centel operator and prompt police and park rangers. Richard Urey has this report on the capture of Alex Christopher Ewing. Authorities say Ewing placed a long-distance phone call from the Lake Mead Boat Harbor at about 7.30 last night. Centel officials say Ewing convinced an operator to let him make a free emergency call to a relative in Arizona. Just as the call was connected, Ewing blurted out that he had escaped and wanted a party on the other end to come and get him. As before, even in Phoenix, Ewing was in the headlines. Headline, come get me. Operator, here's getaway plea. Fugitive, nabbed. Henderson Police Chief James Goff said Monday that Alex Christopher Ewing got on the phone with the operator and told her he was broke down and didn't have any money. He asked her to make a call to Arizona and asked her to stay on the line, Goff said. She did, and the first words she heard were, I've escaped, come get me. She apparently put two and two together and called police. Thank God she'd been watching the news and was aware of the guy. Arizona Republic, August 14, 1984. I was kind of surprised that he'd still be here. We thought he might have left the area by now. But there are a lot of places where he could hide out here in the wash. It surprised us that he was still out here. It would have been very easy for him to uh, commandeer the vehicle or probably cause more harm to more people. Over a career that stretched across three decades and seven national parks, Glacier, Saguaro, Arches, Death Valley, Lake Mead, Grand Canyon, and Volcanoes, and his time as a supervisory law enforcement officer with the Bureau of Land Management, Meyer probably made more than a thousand arrests. A few stand out at the top of his mind. Two rapists in the Grand Canyon and Ewing who was unlike anyone Meyer ever encountered. Yeah, it was just uh, just stone stone cold flatline would would be uh, be the best. When he was running, he was running. <laughs> he was moving and 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 he was, you know, he, he had a mission there. But once that mission was done, that was it was just just flat. I, I probably have over a thousand arrests plus, and I've never I've never seen that flatness, that that lack of emotion, that lack of. Um, expression. He's just a flatliner. When I tell stories, I tell that story to other people. Um, it, it, I think the brutality of what he did to the berries always is something that comes back in mind when when I think of Lake Mead and I think of those things, I think of how brutal he was to the berries who didn't do anything. They were only trying to protect themselves. Meyer wrote a book about his life in federal law enforcement, devoting a chapter to Ewing. A break in a murder case, cold for more than three decades. And then came shocking developments in 2018 in the long unsolved hammer murders of Bruce, Deborah, and Melissa Bennett in Aurora and Patricia Louise Smith in Lakewood. We're getting our first look today at the man Aurora police consider a potential suspect in the 1984 slings of a couple and their young daughter. Our Nine Wants to Know team has confirmed that this man, Alex Christopher Ewing, is in the sights of Aurora investigators in a series of attacks that rattled the metro area. Did it surprise you to learn that news? Yeah, it did. That 
again, going back to his flatness, that he didn't show any emotions. And maybe that was part of his protection, that he didn't want to go. But yeah, that he could have done that. And, and, and also what he had done in Kingman, too. And those things that that person could be that violent. He's not a big guy. He's kind of a wiry guy. And, 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 and to, to express those emotions so intensely, to do that much damage to people, and so much lasting damage. After the attack in Kingman, after the escape in Henderson, after the savage beating of Nancy and Chris Berry, there wasn't a dry eye in the, in the courtroom. After two days on the lam and an arrest at Lake Mead. And there wasn't a single person in that courtroom who wasn't scared of the guy sitting at the table next to me. Alex Christopher Ewing would face a reckoning in a Las Vegas courtroom. It was clear this guy was a killer. Next time on Blame, the fear all these years. Blame is a production of KUSA-TV 9 News in Denver, Colorado, and Tegna Media. Nicole Vapp is executive producer. Anna Houston is producer and editor. I'm your host, investigative reporter Kevin Vaughn. The original television coverage of the capture of Alex Christopher Ewing was from KLAS-TV Channel 8 in Las Vegas. Additional production assistance from Tim Ryan. There's much more, including photographs, interviews, and some of our old coverage of this case at 9news.com blame. If you like Blame, The Fear All These Years, subscribe at Podbean, Apple Podcasts, or any popular podcasting app. And check out our first two investigative podcasts. Blame, Was the Death of Jill Wells an Accident or Murder? And Blame, Lost at Home. You can like us on our Facebook page, Blame Podcast. And if you've got suggestions or tips for a future investigative podcast, reach us at blame at 9news.com.